for your word, hungry for what you would teach us, hungry and eager to learn more about our excellent Savior, Jesus Christ, and to find in him everything that we need to address the difficulties of our lives, to live them faithfully, to walk through even sometimes the valley of the shadow of death in a way that pleases you and shows the world what you are like. And even, Father, to learn how to handle the blessings of this life in a way that pleases you, because somehow we're even able to mess those up. And so we praise you, Father. You're so gracious, so kind to us, so slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What God is like our God? And who are we that we should be his people? And so, Father, we praise you. We thank you for this word this morning. Pray that it would be yours and not mine, that your people would be eager to hear and appropriate into their lives for Jesus' sake. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we were in Hebrews chapter 12, and this week I kind of want to pick up there a little bit. I was, when I was studying for that message last week on God's school of suffering, I found myself off, uh, almost captivated by the realization that Jesus himself also attended God's school of suffering. And the way he responded to the various trials and sufferings of life serve as kind of the perfect model for us of how we are to respond to the disappointments and trials and, yes, even the tragedies of life. But it's not only that. The reality of the fact that he responded to each trial without sinning is cause for great hope for us in our warfare against sin. Because he was faithful to be victorious over sin, we can be faithful and victorious over sin. We can be obedient. In fact, I don't even like to use the word victorious because it sounds like a terminating point, like you're never going to struggle with sin again once you reach the point of being victorious. That's not the goal, and I'm not even sure that that's a biblical term. What, what we're after is continual, long-term, lifelong obedience to God in the midst of trial, and that's what we see in Jesus' life. And so in order to kind of get the full weight of what Jesus did in his life as our example, I, I think it would be helpful to begin by just refreshing on what we learned last week, especially since some of you weren't here and you may not have a full uh, grasp of the context of this message. So you remember Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, and this is how that reads. Hebrews 12, 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And this is a wonderful, wonderful text for us. It, it is a corrective. The apostle, uh, whoever it was who wrote Hebrews, and no one knows for sure, but whoever it was writing this was seeking to rebuke and correct the people that he was writing to because they were responding badly to their appointed trials and sufferings in life. And last week we looked at the five ways 
that we as believers typically respond badly to trial, the wrong ways to respond to trial and suffering. And here they are uh, based on verse 4. Number one here is we tend to overstate the intensity of our suffering. The apostle said, you, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I mean, to listen to the way you talk about your striving, you would think that you've been crucified or that you were somehow facing martyrdom. You're way overblowing the intensity of your suffering. Number two, from verse five, we find that we also neglect to bring God's word to bear on our suffering. Verse five, he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you. And then he quotes out of, the book of Proverbs. His point is we tend to listen to our hearts rather than speaking God's truth to our hearts. And when we do that, it typically leads us into sin. We typically respond to difficulty badly. And let me just say, uh, as, as kind of a parenthesis, that this is the root of probably 90% of the counseling that we do at Calvary Bible Church, not just my counseling, but all of the counselors here, 90, maybe 95%, maybe more of the counseling that we do is rooted here. We have a difficulty, a trial, or a decision to make, and they typically all go together, and we respond to it badly. That is, we respond to it in unbelief. We respond to it in an unbiblical manner. And, and then we start headed downward. The way of the transgressor is hard, and it's incremental. You take steps downward. And you just need to know, from the perspective of a, of a team of counselors at this church who have dealt with everything from multiple personality to severe, what the word would call clinical depression, to, I mean, just every kind of, of issue of, of the heart that, that anybody deals with, I think, that time after time after time, we see that the real root issue is that the person chooses to live out of the feelings of their heart and the wisdom of their own mind rather than bringing God's word to bear. And so the author is saying, uh, you have forgotten the exhortation. You have not brought the exhortation to bear upon your problem. You're not speaking truth to your heart. You're listening to that foolish thing, that wicked thing, that that sinful thing called the heart, Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick, right? Why would you listen to that? Number three, we tend to make light, or in the King James it says despise. We tend to despise um, the, uh, the suffer, the per God's purpose for our suffering. Verse five says, my son, do not regard lightly or do not despise the discipline of the Lord. And so there are sometimes when we face a severe trial, we kind of raise our fist up to God and we say, why did you do this? I want an explanation. But that's not the only way to respond to trial. There's another group, and this is number four. We tend to regard, we tend to faint under the weight of suffering. It's not that we're putting our fist in God's face. We just tend to collapse. We tend to melt down under any suffering. And in both of those cases, whether we despise God's suffering or we melt down under it, the author of Hebrews is saying both of those are illegitimate for a believer. You're not allowed to do that. You know, the world can do that. They're trying to cope with life. They reject Christ. So anything they can do to cope, 
with the difficulties of life, that's fine. But you're a child of God. You belong to Christ. You are not permitted to despise the suffering that God has ordained for your life, nor are you permitted to collapse under it. And then number five, we tend to misinterpret God's attitude toward our suffering. We tend to misinterpret God's attitude toward our suffering. Verse six, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. God loves and he receives those who belong to him who are being disciplined by his providential hand. And some of us, however, tend to think, no, God is judging me. He's punishing me. He hates me. And that's exactly the opposite perspective of the Word of God and certainly the opposite perspective from the author of Hebrews. Our, our sin is not a sign that God has rejected us. It is evidence, according to Hebrews 12, it is evidence that he loves us. He's training us and correcting and refining us as a perfect father would his beloved children. And he makes that explicit in this text. And so these are five common, unbiblical, unbelieving ways to respond to our trials. But then the author reveals a faithful, biblical response that God desires from our trials. And we see this in verse 7, which basically teaches that every hardship God allows or ordains is for training. Look at verse 7. For it is for discipline. Remember last week we looked at this. Paideia is the Greek word here. It means to train a child. Or, or to be like a coach training an athlete. It is for discipline. It is for training that you endure. God is treating you as sons. Or your coach is treating you like a potential Olympic athlete. It is for training that you endure. In verses 9 and 10, he teaches that, um, that we should trust that God disciplines us for the purpose of change. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as they seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. God's trying to change us. This is sanctification. This is sanctification. And by the way, just to get back on the whole psychology thing, Listen, it's not that we're down on psychology. Well, we are, but let me, let me clarify it. <laughs> let me clarify it. Let me, let, we got to be clear. We got to make distinctions here. Listen, every, when a 12-step program, every time they get a drunkard off the streets and no longer drinking and driving, praise God. Praise God for that. Every time they take someone... And through their 12-step process, they help them overcome some addiction, some drug addiction, uh, so that they're no longer a danger to society or to themselves or to their families. Praise God for that. But here's the distinction. That's not sanctification. That's not sanctification. God is out to make us holy. He's out to make us like Christ He's not just trying to suppress our sinful desires or help us to cope with our circumstances. He has ordained our circumstances 
and has restrained Satan or allowed him to do whatever in our lives, or not Satan, he, he doesn't have time for you or for me probably. He can only be in one place at one time. But his, his evil spirits, his minions, whatever, or even your own flesh, God restrains and allows at circumstances outside of your control. God is in control of it all, and he's controlling it for his glory and for your good. And what's the good? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. It's a huge difference from all of the various psychologies that the world has to offer. Well, I don't see where that was in my notes, but we'll just call that free. <laughs> it's interesting, though, that the, the author here gives us a negative example, of a bibl negative biblical example of how to respond to suffering. And we see this in the life of Esau. Look at verses 16 and 17, same context. Actually, we start at the beginning of the sentence in, there in verse 15. And basically, in the, you know, 12 and 13 and 14, he's basically saying, look, body of Christ, find the people who are really struggling and help them stand up. Their knees are weak, their mind, their resolve is weak. You've got to get around them. You've got to help them. And then in verse 15, he says, see to it, church, that no one, that is no one in your body, no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness spring up causes, and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is, watch this, sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What was going on? Why did he sell his birthright? He's comparing sexual immorality with Esau selling his birthright. Now, why did Esau do that? Answer, he's hungry. He's hungry. I mean, he was experiencing a severe trial, at least he thought so, and he comes, stumbles out of the woods, often like I do, been hunting all day or all week. <laughs> uh, we love to hunt. We just, just can't seem to kill very much when we're out there. Um, he comes stumbling out of the woods, and there's his brother cooking a, a pot of stew, and he says, uh, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. Man, don't you know how hungry I am? I do. Give me your birthright, I'll give you some stew. What good is my birthright? I'm so hungry. Turns it over. You know what he did? He responded in unbelief to his trial. He was having a really bad day, and that bad day provoked him to make a sinful choice. But he didn't have to. And that's precisely why the apostle writing the book of Hebrews tells us about this guy. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. And so that's a negative example. And you read these negative examples and you think, okay, can you give us a positive example? Somebody to follow? Somebody who did it right? What exactly does it look like to respond to trials and suffering in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord? Can you give us an example of someone who lived a life, had a lot of circumstances, where we can look at him and say, oh, that's how to do it. Yep, that's how to do it. That's, look, he did it again. He responds to trial every time, just right. And the answer to that question is, absolutely. We have that person, and his name is Jesus. Now, let me go back to the psychology thing again. Um, you know why there's so many psychologies? 
different psychologies? One of the answers to that question is this. Understand, we understand that people who go into psychology, they're all trying to help people. People got problems, we all got problems. Everybody understands all God's children got problems. The question is, how do you help people with problems? And so psychology has come along to answer that question. But here's the problem with psychology. The various psychologies, they all understand one very important deficiency that they have, and they believe all of us have it, and that is that none of us knows what the normal man looks like. What is the normal man? And by that I mean, what is the standard? Who are we to look at and say, everybody should be like that? If you want to be normal, if you want to be healthy and whole and all of that stuff, then that's the goal right there. It's one thing, one person. You become like that and, and you'll have it all together. They don't have that. They don't have it. And so they make it up. They do the best they can with the values that they have to make something up. That's why Freud was so different than Skinner and Maslow and Maurer and, and all the other leaders of the psychologies. They didn't have and don't have a normal man, a model to follow. And that's the great distinction between all of the psychologies and the Word of God. Does the Word of God have answers to your problems? Yes. How can it do that? Because it clearly lays before us who the normal man is. What does he look like? How does he respond to circumstances? What does he say? How does he think? How does he pray? And all of it is right here in the book. I mean, Peter was right. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord endures forever, right? We don't need that stuff. We don't need the humanistic psychologies. Why would we? We have Christ. So the goal is to become like him. And the author of Hebrews picks that theme up. We need to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's where the author started us here in chapter 12, verse 1. And, and here's his counsel. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so uh, easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and then sat down to the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there's the whole of our psychology right there. That's the whole, the whole of biblical counseling right there. This is where you are. This is where Jesus is. What do we need to do to help you become more like Jesus? That's sanctification. That's sanctification. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is telling us to do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. You become what you behold. So behold Jesus and be transformed into his glory. From glory to glory to glory. Now at first blush, this might not seem like a tremendous encouragement to us. In our suffering, after all, Jesus you might think, was not really like us. I mean, he had a bit of an advantage in his struggle against temptation because, you know, he was God. Doesn't that help? 
Can I answer that question um, in a way that might shock you? The answer is no. It didn't help. And I'll tell you why. And so we're, we're getting ready to go into the deep end here of theology. Um, I would think that if I were God, I would probably do a better job of resisting temptation than what I do. Um, but this perspective, that kind of thinking overlooks a significant characteristic of, of the incarnate Christ. Was he God? Absolutely. Absolutely he was God. He was God in flesh, incarnate deity. But remember, remember this, that when he became a man, he laid aside his divine rights and privileges and status to become a man, to become like one of us. And he absolutely had to if he was going to save us. He had to become a man, and he had to handle sin and temptation. He had to handle every temptation, not as God, but as a man. There had to be real righteousness. Listen, it isn't just the death of Christ that saves you. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4, 5, 6, all the way through Romans. But especially Romans chapter 5. You know, ask yourself this question. Why didn't God send Jesus down for the weekend to wrap up the whole thing? Why 33 years? Why a baby growing up through boyhood, through adolescence, through puberty, through all of that stuff, all the way through to till they put him to death on the cross? Why was 33 years necessary? Answer, he had to be a real man who lived a truly, perfectly righteous life in order for there to be any righteousness to apply to our account. It's not good enough that you're forgiven for your sin. If you were only forgiven for your sin, you would stand before God on the last day as a zero. No demerit, no merit either. And God's not like that. God is perfectly righteous in all of his infinite perfections. You must be like God. You must be righteous as he is righteous. You must be perfect as he is perfect. But how do we attain that? Answer, we don't. God applies the righteousness of Christ to our, to our account. That's what the book of Romans is about. Where do we get righteousness from? Is it from law-keeping or is it from Christ? And his answer is, Christ is all we need. It is a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. And what is it about Christ that gives us righteousness? He lived the perfect life, and he did it as a man, as a man. And so, Philippians 2, 5 through 7, turn there. I, I want you to look at these texts and wrestle with them on your own. And I exhort you, as always, please don't take my word for this. Study it yourself, as the Bereans did, to see whether or not these things are so. And get ready to fall on your face and worship because this is glorious. Now, we just don't really fully understand all that Jesus gave up to save us. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Here's the Apostle Paul once again appealing that, to us to follow the example of the normal man, the model. And here we go. But we learn something about Christ in the process. So 
Philippians 2, 5 through 7, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So here it is, the normal man, look at his attitude, that should be your attitude. You, you want to live a life where uh, your emotions are, are on an even keel, they're functioning properly, you know, they're high when they should be high, they're low when they should be low, and everything in between when it's appropriate. Um, look to Jesus. You want to know what humility is? Look to Jesus. Watch this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, which is what he had, a thing to be grasped or a thing to be clung to, held on to, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave, bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. So what did he do? Did he stop being God? No, we're not saying that. Jesus was very God of very God, always was been, always was, always has been, was been. That's a great one. My kids will tease me about that for a month. Um, he always has been the sinless, harmless, undefiled son of God. When he became a man, he added to his divine nature human flesh. But when he became a man with human flesh, he laid aside his divine rights and privileges. Those of you who are of a theological, you love the, the deeper side of theology, study this as the kenosis passage. The word emptied himself in Greek is kenosis. And many trees have lost their lives on this phrase. Study what it means that Jesus emptied himself. And I submit to you that this is what it means, especially in the area of temptation. In the area of temptation, he never, ever, 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 ever once used his divine privileges to help him battle sin, to help him battle temptation. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus, when he came, he emptied himself, left behind him his divine privileges as being deity. He came to earth as a man. He didn't cease being God, but he did all of this for the purpose of our salvation. He became a real man and real flesh and therefore had real limitations, real weaknesses. He became tired. He became hungry. There were things that he didn't know. He laid it all aside. And every time he faced a problem, every time he faced a conflict, every time he faced a betrayal or a tragedy or a temptation, he faced it as a real human being. Take, for example, the time he was tempted by Satan. And we're going to look at this passage twice this morning, but Luke chapter 4. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is the classic passage where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Let me just read for you verses 1 through 3. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. You see, why did he go out there? Because he was led by the Spirit. The Spirit took him out to the desert to be tempted. Wow, we don't have time to unpack that. And he ate nothing. Now, that's the part I really don't understand. Okay. He ate nothing for 40 days. And when those days were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, okay, watch this. 
If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. This is a really important text here because we find Jesus facing a real temptation from no less than Satan himself. And, and I wasn't kidding earlier when I, when I said, don't blame Satan for your temptations. He can only be at one place at one time, and he's got more, people to, more important people to deal with than me and you. But with Jesus, he addressed him personally. Now, if it were possible for a theologian like Dr. Um, Wayne Grudem to stand in the pulpit this morning and help us out with this, I think this is what he would say, because this is what he wrote in his systematic theology. He says this. This, this is really helpful. He says, of course, Jesus was the Son of God, and of course he had the power to make any stone into bread instantaneously. He was the one who would soon tur turn water into wine and multiply the loaves and fishes. The temptation was intensified by the fact that it seemed as though if he did not eat soon, his very life would be taken from him. Yet he had come to obey God perfectly. And he did it in our place. And he did it as a man. This meant that he had to obey in his human strength alone. If he had called upon his divine powers to make the temptation easier for himself, then he would have he would not have obeyed God fully as a man. The temptation was to use his divine powers to cheat, to cheat a bit on the requirements and to make obedience something that was easier. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, refused to eat what appeared to be good and necessary for him, choosing rather to obey the command of his heavenly Father. The point I want us to grab onto this morning is this, that Jesus faced trials and temptation just like you and me, <laughs> just like you and I do. And we could have made, he could have made the temptation easier by handling, uh, by ut utilizing his divine authority and power, but in obedience to the Father, he faced it as a man. Yes, he did miracles for other people, yes. But when it came to temptation, he faced every temptation as a man. And so Jesus came to earth. Um, he came to earth, as Paul explains in Romans 5, as the second Adam. The second Adam. And like Adam, he was a real man. He was faced with real temptation as a man. But unlike Adam, Jesus responded to every temptation by faith in the promises of God. And by doing so, he fulfilled all righteousness as a man. And that was his goal. He fulfilled all righteousness as a man. And that was his goal from the beginning. You know, one of the first things that Jesus did was he got baptized by John the Baptist. You remember that? And remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming? Like, I'm not even worthy to un un untie his sandal. Lord, you must increase, I must decrease. You should be baptizing me. And you remember what Jesus said? No, no, John. This is, this is not baptism for my sins. I'm being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Because <laughs> that's what we need. A righteousness that we don't have, we can't earn, and we desperately need it. 
And Christ provides it by his perfect life. Romans 5.18 says this, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Glory. <laughs> That's our hope. I mean, you boil down everything in the Bible to its irreducible minimum, and this is it. Christ for righteousness. Christ for righteousness. This kind of puts a different complexion on the sufferings of Christ, doesn't it? And it helps us understand texts like Hebrews 5.8, if you want to jump back to Hebrews. Hebrews 5.8, where the author writes, although he was a son, he, watch this, he learned obedience. Jesus Yes, Jesus. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, Jesus learned what it was like to face real temptations as a real man, just like you and me. And he had to do it as a real man, with real, te real temptations, while in the midst of, of being a man who had real limitations and living in a sinful world, just like you. And so in the mystery of God's sovereign mercy, Jesus Christ the Father's only begotten Son, he also, like you and like me, he had to attend God's school of suffering. There were things the Father wanted him to learn that he could not learn by any other means than by suffering. So it's not just you and me. It's Christ. And he's the reason that we now can suffer well. He learned what it felt like, he felt like to he learned what it felt like to obey the Father in a world that's hostile to holiness. He learned what it was like to be obedient to the Father in a world that is hostile to holiness. And because of that, Hebrews 4:15 says, Therefore, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is tempted in all things, even as we, yet without sin. Without sin. You say, but wasn't it easier for Jesus? I mean, he didn't have a sin nature. We do. And that's a point well taken. Jesus didn't have sin or temptation arising from his own heart. That's true. But let me suggest to you that his battle against temptation was infinitely harder than ours. You know why? He never cheated. And he never did what we do when we can't take the temptation anymore. You know what we do? We sin. Conflict over. Now there's guilt and there's, you know, maybe depression and maybe some other things, but at least I'm not having to deal with the temptation anymore. And then there's forgiveness. It's kind of like the, eject, the, the ejection button. How do you get out of the temptation? Just give in to the sin. Just give in to the sin. You know what? 
You remember the last time you were determined that there is a sin in your life that, um, that you're trying to get a hold of. Let's just pick one that none of us in here deal with. How about overeating? <laughs> um, let's say you're trying to lose some weight and get into shape and you just think the Lord doesn't want you and your doctor has certainly told you that you need to do a better job with that and so you're, you're committed and the holidays come along and, and there's grandma's you know, uh, uh, cinnamon rolls and the chocolate pie, that's a great southern dessert and you know, and all the homemade rolls. You know, no kidding. In my house, we made uh, this past year and the year before. Our kids always count how many homemade rolls my wife makes. Last year, uh, this last last holiday, I think for Thanksgiving, a hundred and eighteen, a hundred and twenty, something like that rolls. And we didn't have company for this. This was just <laughs> our kids. You know what? Next day, I'm thinking, I want one of those rolls. <laughs> they were gone. I work, okay, maybe that's not part of the sermon either, but <laughs> maybe I need to ask for forgiveness for that. But um, um, what was my point? My point was <laughs> that so here you come along in the, uh, here you're coming along in the holidays and you're thinking, I'm not going to eat 10 rolls. I'm, I'm not going to eat two. I'm going to eat two. I'm going to eat two. And so there you are. You have your two. One meal, you eat two. Okay, well, there's leftovers and lunch tomorrow and tomorrow evening leftovers again. And, and there's all this food. And you think, you know, I'm not going to be a legalist, just three, you know, or four. That's the way we normally go. But let's say, no, 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 you are going to be a legalist about this. You're going to be, no, let's just call it faithfulness, okay? There's a fine line. And you're going to say, I- I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And the desserts keep coming out, the food keeps coming out. No, no, no. Is it harder to do that or easier? It's harder. It's easier just to eat the next one, eat the next one, eat the next one. That's the way it is with all temptation. It's just easier to give in. It's easier to give in. Now think about this. Jesus lived 33 years. He never once gave in. Never. Can you imagine that? And so I say to you that his battle against temptation was infinitely more difficult than ours. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Listen, the devil tempted him 40 days without food. Jesus made the choice not to despise the Lord's discipline or faint under its weight or to question God's love. Rather, he trusted his father was dealing with him as a beloved son. He didn't cheat by tapping into his eternal power to make the temptation go away. But we do. All of us know what it's like to cheat. When a woman becomes feeling discontent about life rather than giving thanks to the Lord for the provision and grace that God has given, she goes shopping instead. It's like cheating on a test at school or or in the school of suffering. When the taxes are due and a man begins to feel the weight of the money that he's about to lose, instead of being honest and trusting the Lord, he cheats by fudging on the numbers a little bit. And when a young man feels needy and alone, rather than seeing it as an invitation to a deeper fellowship with Christ, he may be tempted to cheat by taking his mouse and clicking to a website that no believer has any business going to. 
It's like cheating on a test in God's school of suffering. When Jesus was faced with various trials, however, never cheated. He never gave in to temptation. He never took advantage of his heavenly privileges either. He faced them as God expects us to face them. He faced them as a man. And so when we read in Hebrews chapter 12 about how we're supposed to respond to the temptations and trials and sufferings of life, we can rest assured that the exhortation is not coming from someone who hasn't suffered. He has. He is one who has been tempted in every conceivable way as a man can be tempted but never once gave in. Jesus always responded to suffering by faith in God's promises. He always responded by faith in God's promises, which were to him the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's be a little more specific, shall we, with Jesus? Let's just look at a few scenarios. Let's go back to that Luke passage, Luke chapter 4, Jesus tempted by Satan. And let's learn something else here. Notice that unlike the author of Hebrews, the people that he was exhorting, Jesus did not forget the word of exhortation. Jesus did not forget the word of exhortation. In other words, he didn't neglect to bring the word of God to bear on the situation. He didn't neglect to bring scripture to bear. Rather, he quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I want you to turn back there again. Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 8. Are you there? Are you awake? Okay, uh, chapter 8. And rather than looking at, jumping into verse 3, I want you to look at verse 2 first, okay? So here's what the Lord says through Moses. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. What does that tell us? Well, this tells us that they're at the end. Moses is about to die. He's gone to the promised land once, sent the ten spies in. They brought an evil report. God sent them to the wilderness for 40 years. They ate the manor. They drank water from a rock, et cetera, et cetera. They're back at Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to cross into the promised land on the Jordan River. And um, Moses is about to die. He's giving his last instructions, and he tells Joshua and the people, there was a reason that you were led through that 40-year trial. Whenever you're counseling someone who's, who's struggling to deal with a difficult trial in their life, show them this text. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, and, because here is why, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. We use the illustration of the bottle around here a lot, right? You take a bottle and you shake it, pop the lid off and shake it, what's going to come out? Whatever's inside. Whatever's inside. God led you 40 years shaking the bottle of Israel, shaking their hearts, and guess what came out? Whatever was inside. For most of them, it was unbelief. For some of them, it was worship. Whatever is inside is what gets expressed out of me whenever things don't go the way I want them to. I'm about, in, in an hour and 20 minutes, I hope, going to hop on an airplane. If that doesn't go well, <laughs> whatever's inside is going to come out. 
But there's more to the verse. Verse 3 says this. God humbled you and led you, let you be hungry. Isn't that interesting? God designed for you to suffer, to be hungry. And he fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand. Here's Jesus' quotation. Ready? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said to Satan. Command these stones to be turned into bread. No, 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 no. Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by what God says. I take this to mean that we are to live by faith in God's promises. From the mouth of God come life-giving promises. And if we would be ruled by them rather than the promise of sin, we would know abundant life. What about Jesus with the Romans? He tortured by the Romans. In John chapter 19, we don't have time to look at this, but you know Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate had him scourged. How would you respond to that, being publicly humiliated and beat into the, to the inch of your life? The Apostle Peter said this is how Jesus responded. 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting. You see faith there? You see trust? Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You got people in your past that you think they deserve justice, and they're not getting it? Just cool your jets. The time is coming. God will handle it. Entrust your case with God. Entrust it with Christ. He is your advocate before the great judge. He will hear your case, and all wrongs will be made right. And that's one of the great promises of the Bible, isn't it? Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, since I'm going to handle that, you just worry about representing me well. Feed your enemy. Clothe him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'll handle this sin. I'll handle the injustice. No, about you, that gives me great comfort. And then thirdly, what about Jesus in the garden, Matthew 26? There was ever a time to despise the discipline or to faint under it? That was the day. That was the hour, but he didn't. I would encourage you to read this later, but here, let me just make some observations. This is Matthew 26. Matthew 26. This is where Jesus falls on his face before the Father and says, Father, if it be possible... Take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 26, 36. And we don't have time to read this. Let me just give you some bullet points here. Five things that Jesus does in the midst of his difficult hour. He chose some close friends to attend him, verse 37. He didn't withdraw out by himself and faint. He didn't let the trial cause him to collapse. He didn't faint and he didn't despise the suffering. Verse 38, he's laid, he laid his heart before men. He laid his heart bare before his brothers. And he said, this is, this is the heaviest thing I've ever dealt with in my life. I fear that it might even kill me. So heavy was the weight of this. Again in verse 38, he asked for their help in the warfare against unbelief. Pray, pray, watch and pray. And he came back and rebuked them twice. Can you not watch and pray for one hour? Pray. It's interesting the contrast between him and them. 
when they were in their darkest hour out on the sea, where was he? On the mountain praying for them. Verse 39, he pleaded with the father to remove the trial. Nothing wrong with that. You're sick, you're suffering, nothing wrong with pleading. God, would you please, would you please remove this child? As long, trial, not child. <laughs> I prayed that a couple times. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh boy, lots of repentance to do. At the end of his prayer, it demonstrates that he was trusting the father. There was this balance of, yes, I'm suffering, and I don't want to suffer, but I submit. I'm going to suffer in submission. I ask you, here's my will, Lord, remove the suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And finally, um, verse 39, he says it again. He resolves to trust the Father's will. Beloved, when God tells us how to interpret um, and respond to trial, tragedy, and suffering in this world, he speaks from experience. He's there. He knows how you feel in your trial. Therefore, this is what the author says. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Trust him. Follow him. Yes, it's not going to be easy, but keep your eyes on the prize. Keep it on that gold medal, the reward, the promises of heaven. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and did it faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to be faithful even as Christ was faithful. Oh, Father, help us. Change us. Help us now, Father, to interpret the next difficulty according to your word. Be glorified in us, Father, as we do. We long to be more like Christ. We praise you for using our circumstances to shape and mold us to become more like him. And so we give you praise and glory and honor. And we do it by the authority of Jesus' name our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our example. Amen.